I'm Lonnie Edwards, the founder of The Dog Agency and Pet Insider, and you're listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. This is a show about the latest and greatest across the pet world. Whether you're a pet parent or just a little pet crazy, Pet Insider has you covered. We get it. We're obsessed too. So dogs were the first uh, species domesticated by people. So they predate the domestication of cats, cows, wheat, corn, everything. That was Adam Boyko, assistant professor of biomedical sciences at the Cornell Vet School and co-founder of Embark, a leader in canine DNA research. Adam will discuss where dogs came from, how they became man's best friend, the genetic research he's doing to reduce diseases in pups, and more. Now let's get back to Adam. So to get started, where did dogs come from? Oh, that's a great question. People have wondered that for a very long time uh, because dogs come in all different shapes and sizes. It really isn't clear what the wild uh, progenitor was for it for a long time. Uh, When we started to do genetic analysis, uh, we could see that it came from gray wolves. So uh, uh, as we've studied more and more about dogs and wolves, it becomes clear that there was a single domestication event, probably in Asia, probably about 20,000 years ago. And, uh, and what likely happened is that the, the wolves kind of uh, self-domesticated. They tamed themselves. So uh, being a wolf that was more tolerant around people, so you could maybe move in and share some of the kills that the people had, uh, became more and more profitable. And it started them down a different evolutionary trajectory than the rest of the wolves, which uh, have retained their desire to stay away from people and hunt for their own uh, food. How has the bond between man and dog evolved over time? So dogs were the first uh, species domesticated by people. So they predate the domestication of cats, cows, wheat, corn, everything. Uh, so it's it's a really unique bond. And and pretty shortly after domestication, you know, dogs kind of became a part of human settlements. And and once they were hanging around people full time, uh, people started to realize they were useful for different stuff and started to breed them. Uh, in into different forms, and so you know, even nine thousand years ago, there's there's dogs that are sled dogs, and you know, thousands of years ago, there's dogs that were sight hounds or scent hounds or or muscular, you know, kind of fighting guardian uh, dogs, livestock protecting dogs are some of the oldest breeds out there. So they've really uh, evolved into you know hundreds and hundreds of different breeds and races around the globe um, that have been bred to do specific uh, tasks. So it seems like at the beginning, the relationship between human and dogs was more kind of like working dogs. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, at the very beginning, it probably wasn't a working relationship. It was, you know, probably there was food around human settlements and these proto-dogs figured out how to exploit it. Uh, but shortly after that, then um, it's, you know, it's still up for debate what was the first roles that dog played. Uh, maybe they were, maybe they were guards at the settlement, you know, they have very keen senses, uh, many, you know, their sense of hearing and their sense of smell is much keener than humans. So very useful to use them as sentinels. Um, they obviously have hunting instincts. And so cooperative hunting could have been one of the very early things, uh, that dogs did. Um, and then, you know, other roles of, you know, fighting and sledging and hunting, uh, in different ways, uh, certainly were some of the early tasks that dogs did. And when did it shift to becoming more of a friendship between man and dog? I would argue that it maybe hasn't shifted as much as we think. So there's a billion dogs in the world today, and most of them are not purebred dogs. Most of them are not mixed breed dogs like you think of at you know your 
typical pound pup. Uh, most of them are living the dog lifestyle that most dogs have lived throughout time, which is that of a village dog. So, so these are dogs that aren't descended from purebreds or mixes of purebreds, but these are natural populations of dogs. Uh, they live in the environment and they uh, associate around human settlements, but they aren't owned in the sense of we think of dog ownership. You know, they're sort of, you know, living in a natural, albeit human dominated uh, environment and just trying to figure out how to get by. I feel like in the U.S. it's more pet based. Is that different depending on where these dogs are living? How does location kind of matter uh, when we talk about the relationship between humans and dogs? Right. In, in the United States and in other um, developed countries, there have been, uh, you know, really strong interest, uh, you know, first of all, controlling the amount of uh, debris and garbage that are out in the environment, uh, so sanitation as well as uh, controlling the reproduction of dogs. So lots of spaying and neutering. And so this has had the effect that in the United States, almost all dogs are purebred or mixed breed dogs. It's about half and half. Uh, but when you, when you go to other countries, um, other islands, you know, other almost everywhere else in the world, you will see dogs roaming around the streets. And in some cases, these street dogs may be strays that you know had purebred parents and have just kind of resumed living on the streets but most of the time in most of the world what's actually happening is these are natural populations of dogs that have been there for thousands of years and they don't descend from any of the modern breeds that we have uh, that we have bred how many breeds of dogs are there the last count i heard is over 500 uh, I don't oh, wow. think <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So AKC has about 200 uh, breeds. Uh, if you count their foundations, back service, uh, UKC has some breeds too. Um, I've seen genetic data now on almost 300 different breeds, but I know that there's uh, you know more out there that haven't been genetically characterized yet. So I'm a geneticist. Uh, it's a really exciting time to be in canine genomics. We're learning more and more all the time. And in the U.S., is that number significantly smaller? I wouldn't say it's significantly smaller. So, yeah, AKC has just over 200 breeds that they characterize. Uh, and then there are some non-AKC uh, breeds where where there's no, so it's not part of the American Kennel Club uh, breed club. But these are, you know, imports from abroad from from other breeds. And then there's definitely some dog breeds out there in different parts of the world that, as far as I know, have, have never stepped upon in the United States yet. The bond between man and dog, why do you think it's so strong? Do you think it's because we evolved together or uh, what, what do you think leads to that strong connection? Dogs, you know, wolves are cooperative hunters. They live in a social unit. Humans are obviously very social animals. Uh, so so we were, you know, we, we both have this emotional baggage, this social baggage, this ability to work cooperatively. And so it was just a matter of making this work across species. Um, we've been through a lot together. We've been through the whole agricultural revolution. We've been through colonizing all different remote corners of the globe. Uh, it's, it's not just the dogs that have evolved to read our cues. Humans are very inept at, at reading. You know, if you, if you hear a dog barking, even if it's not your dog, uh, you generally can tell is that dog uh, barking because it's mad at an intruder or because it wants to play or because it sees its owner or, you know, you can, so we could figure out dog language and dogs can figure out uh, our language. And you touched on this a little bit, but what is special about dogs that they've become man's best friend? We've developed this strong bond with them. Why dogs? Well, I think, you know, again, because dogs come from this uh, social environment, um, they're, they're kind of wired to uh you know 
to want to please others in the pack uh, to, to get rewards. So dogs are very motivatable, which means they're very trainable. And so we've been able to uh, breed them to perform lots of different roles and functions. Uh, and, and, and so it's not just the desire of the dog to, to please you and our ability to train it, but it's also our ability to breed for a specific size and stature and shape that's going to be uh, suitable for that task. Uh, and, and, you know, because we get this whole package with dogs, we're able to, we're able to use dogs in all sorts of different roles. Uh, and they've evolved this diversity that you, you don't really see in any other mammal species. And then, so talking about you specifically, how did you get into this? Yeah, it was by happenstance. I was, you know, oh, I always loved dogs as a kid, um, you know, traveling around the world. I was always fascinated by the dogs that I would see in different countries and they look very different than uh, the dogs I would see back at home. Uh, I got a degree in biology, uh, studying tropical butterflies of all things. And uh, this was around 2005. And I kind of figured I wanted to go into genetics after that. And most of the good data sets back then were human genetic data sets. So that's what I started working on. But I was fortunate enough to work in a lab where there was a dog genetics project going on. Uh, and I was able to, to take part in that and uh, help that along. And uh, and it was looking at purebred dogs. And I kind of raised the issue of, well, you know, that's really just a thin slice of dog genetic diversity because there's there's so many other cool dogs out there. And so, so I started studying village dogs and, and other kinds of dogs around the world. And uh, it sort of just kept snowballing and kept snowballing. There's just more and more cool stuff to do with dogs. And so uh, now I'm here at the uh, Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine running a canine genetics lab. Talk to us about Embark, your company. Yeah, so Embark is kind of a spinoff from some of the work that uh, I was doing at Cornell. Uh, it, it, was, um, it was founded based on two frustrations. So one of them is there's stuff that we know is genetic in dogs, like behavior, and like uh, cancer risk and hip dysplasia, but it was clear that the amount of data you would need to, to figure out what's going on genetically was just an order of magnitude bigger than anything you'd be able to, to get funded for. You know, there's, there's only so much money from NSF and NIH and a lot of it's going to human health and, you know, not dogs. And so, so I was trying to think of ways to get bigger data sets. And on the flip side, doing my research, I could tell uh, what, one thing I, people always talk to me about when they heard about my research is, oh, oh, can I give you DNA for my dog? Can it be part of your research studies? And can you tell me <laughs> where my dog came from and, and all that stuff? And so, uh, you know, eventually it was like, why do stuff for free if somebody's going to pay you to do it? And also, wouldn't this be a really cool way uh, to make new research discoveries that really aren't possible uh, in some cases within an academic setting? And so it's been you know, really exciting, uh, the, you know, the, the folks, you know, there's been a lot of really great media coverage. People are really interested in the idea. We've recruited some great scientists. We've already made some discoveries that we've, um, that we've published and, and we're ramping up as we're getting more and more dogs to do more. That's awesome. Can you talk about those discoveries? Uh, well, they're under review right now. So, uh, <laughs> I'd be happy to talk about them as soon as they are, uh, accepted and published, but unfortunately I'm, I'm, I'm gagged right now. Uh, totally fine. <laughs> Is there any of you can share with us either uh, on th about things you're working on, things you're looking into? Sure. So we have uh, entered into some partnerships with some uh, organizations that are really interested in dog health. So one of them is the Doberman Diversity Project. 
Uh, and so, you know, Dobermans, they're this, you know, great breed. They were extremely popular, but they've gone through this bottleneck. There's not a lot of genetic diversity left. And we're trying to give them the tools that they need in order to maintain and ideally increase genetic diversity in their lines and reduce the impact of inbreeding and avoiding, you know, deleterious uh, matings. So, uh, and we're, we're working like that with other breed clubs as well and, and health chairs at breed clubs. Uh, we, we are trying to launch a few projects now to try to map um, the genetic basis of different traits and diseases so that genetic tests can be developed for them. Uh, so these are very much works in progress. Uh, but, uh, you, know, de you know, definitely if you have a dog that's been diagnosed with a genetic condition, you know, let us know if it's one of the research projects we're going through, we can, we can you know, offer reduced price testing or free testing to include them in the data set so we can push forward this research. And when people do the DNA test, what are the results that they get? So we try to be um, the one-stop shop comprehensive uh, DNA test. And, uh, and so you get a swab in the mail, you swab your dog, send it back, and then you log into the computer uh, a few weeks later after you get your email, and you'll get to see a breakdown of the, of the breed mix of your dog, including like a little family tree. Uh, you'll get to see the maternal and paternal lineages. So this is the, the um, mitochondrial haplotype and Y chromosome haplotype for males uh, that, we can, that we can trace back basically to the dawn of dogs. Um, so you get the family tree from both sides regardless, but, uh, but only, uh, only boys have a Y chromosome. So we can only trace that uh, part of the tree back for, for males. And then you get uh, an inbreeding coefficient. Uh, so you'll know how inbred your dog is. Isn't that something you always wanted to know? <laughs> um, we'll, we'll give you uh, trait analyses, so you'll know the coat color variants that your dog carries, uh, other kind of fur type, body size, things like that. Uh, you'll get a genetic weight estimate for your dog. So based on all the known genes that affect body size in dogs, we can, we can create an estimate that's fairly accurate for, for how much your dog should weigh. And if your dog weighs significantly more, you should maybe take a second look at it and make sure <laughs> didn't put on a few pounds you didn't notice. Um, and then we, we also have research surveys. So you can, you can log into the website and, and tell us about the health conditions that your dog has or the, the behaviors that your dog exhibits, um, play a few games with your dog, and, uh, and, and we feed that back so that we can, um, we can compare it to the genetic data and kind of drive new discoveries. And then we'll send you updates uh, you know, when those discoveries happen. So you keep learning more and more about your dog. We also test for over 160 different health uh, mutations. So things that could cause disease. So, so you know what to look out for uh, in your dog. And, and that list is growing all the time. What are some examples of those diseases to look out for that you would get in these results? Uh, so anything from inherited eye disorders, you know, like uh, primary lens luxation or, or uh, you know, glaucoma or things like, um, uh, multi-drug sensitivity, so whether your dog should avoid certain kinds of, of drugs. Uh, bleeding disorders are another common one. Uh, there's a fairly common condition called exercise-induced collapse that's in Labradors and mixes where your dog doesn't tolerate uh, exercising out in the heat at all. Um, so just, you know, mostly these are things to look out for, things that can help you be a better doggy parent if you know what to look out for. Uh, in many cases, these are things that really help breeders so that they can avoid mating two dogs that are carriers for the same condition because we don't want to create more dogs that are that are affected with these things. We want to be able to control it. 
Are allergies tied to DNA? Would we get any information on allergies or is that something that's developed over time? So allergies are an area that we're, we're really interested in studying. It's a very hard topic to study because there's, there's a lot that's environmental. And then there, of course, there's genetic uh, susceptibilities to them. And you kind of have to have both triggers in order for it to happen. So there's a lot going on there. Um, and, and this is a case where we need to have really big sample sizes. We need to have, um, you know, good clinical data that this dog is definitely allergic to this thing. And we also need good environmental data about, well, you know, what is this dog regularly exposed to? And, and you know, maybe what was the childhood like? And to try to get all these correlations together, um, you know, I think a lot of it is, you know, there's been an increase in allergies in both dogs and people. And I think this is just sort of the sanitation hypothesis. We live in a lot cleaner environment, um, at least here in the United States, than we did uh, 200 years ago. And we still have the immune system we've been carrying around for a few thousand years. Uh, and so it's kind of uh, our immune system is, is expecting more dangerous things out there. And so it can be hypervigilant sometimes in ways that are not good. And I think probably a similar thing is going on in dogs since they went through the whole industrial revolution and everything with us as well. As far as the research that's being done to learn more about this, is that something that you're working on through Embark? Is that something you're working on at Cornell? Yeah, so we have um, really great scientists at Embark uh, as well as Embark is a research partner of Cornell University Vet School. So, um, so you know, we, we have open lines of collaboration with folks at the, uh, at the vet college, uh, you know, as well as we've, we can reach out to, to other researchers at other institutions. And so we have other projects uh, going on as well. What are some of the other projects you're working on? Uh, so we are working with the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. So we're looking at seeing the impact of inbreeding in Golden Retrievers. Uh, whether it has, you know, how severe of an impact it has maybe on health and fecundity and, and, and those sorts of measures. Um, we've been working with researchers in Australia to kind of genetically characterize the dingo uh, and see if there's pure dingo lines or whether there's admixture with dogs and, and things like that. A whole gamut of projects that, you know, really wouldn't have been able to get off the ground without, you know, uh, people with boots on the ground in, in different locations in the world. And I know your focus is on dogs. Uh, do you do anything with cats? Do you have um, kind of knowledge about the domestication of cats? Yeah, so cats are, are in many ways a similar story, but in many ways a different story. So uh, so Embark doesn't work with cats. Uh, my lab does do some cat research. I personally am allergic to cats, so I don't <laughs> uh, actively <laughs> take part in, in uh, the cat research, um, at least when it comes to collecting the cats. Uh, so so. Cats, like dogs, domesticated themselves. So you had wild cats and, uh, and, and they go where the hunting is good. And where the hunting was good is, you know, after humans had massive grain stores because we started, uh, you know, domesticating our own food sources, uh, the rodents moved in and then the cats moved in to control the rodents. Um, cats weren't really pack animals. They are solitary hunters. And so I think that goes a long way towards uh, describing a somewhat different relationship between people and dogs and people and cats. Uh, so cats are really good at what they do, but uh, it can be difficult to motivate them to do something they don't want to do. And so, uh, and so we haven't bred cats to perform as many working roles as we have uh, bred dogs to do. And so consequently, there's, there's a bit less um, diversity in terms of size, shape, and, and temperament. Uh, in cats than dogs. Not that there's none, not that they're uh, not interesting, but there's there's definitely more breeds of dogs than breeds of cats. How big of a difference? Like, do you know how many breeds of cats there are? 
Oh, I don't I don't remember the exact number. I, I I would be shocked if worldwide there weren't at least 100. So a lot fewer than dogs. But yeah. And then are, are similar studies being done about cat DNA or is it more focused in the dog world? I know you obviously are focused in the dog world, but are there similar things going on for cats? Uh, there are definitely some studies going on for cats. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of interest in uh, you know in in feline tumors as well as canine tumors. So you know, both species look like they could be a really good model, perhaps for for understanding uh, cancer and applying it to people. Even, um, I, you know, I'm not aware of as much high throughput research being done on cats as dogs. So there, I mean, there are research projects now in dogs. Um, where we're talking about thousands of samples, uh, you know, Embark has tens of thousands of samples. You know, there's there's lots of data out there uh, being generated in dogs, and uh, whereas in in cats, they're still coming online with their first hundred or two hundred uh, genomes and working their way up. Speaking of tumors, how much have we learned? How much progress have we made? What do we have left to do? Yeah, so there's there's a lot we've learned. So you know, different breeds have different cancer susceptibilities, and that's driven by genetics. Uh, we don't, for the most part, know specifically what the susceptibility genes are. So we have a hard time trying to breed it out of a breed. Uh, but we can see when we when we profile the tumors. So if we actually look at the, the cancer genome itself, uh, we can see a lot of what we call driver mutations are conserved between dogs and people. So you have different tumor subtypes in people, different tumor subtypes in dogs, and a lot of times the dog subtype is a good match for the human subtype. And so this is very promising if we want to look at using therapeutics that have been designed in people to address homologous tumors in dogs. Uh, it's also going to be very useful if we want to start testing new therapies and maybe getting um, getting answers about what's gonna work faster by, by starting with dogs and then moving to human trials rather than trying to go directly into human trials. And what breeds are, are more susceptible to cancer? Uh, well, about, I would say about a third of all dogs die of cancer, but for some breeds like Golden Retriever, you're talking about half or more. Uh, and so, you know, lots of different tumors like lymphoma in, in Golden Retrievers. Uh, some of the bigger breeds uh, get osteosarcoma so like greyhounds and, and boxers. Um, yeah, and so, so basically any tumor that humans get, dogs get, but it could be at very different frequencies. And some, you know, some tumors that are very common in people, uh, like breast cancer, are relatively uncommon in dogs, and some tumors uh, that are uncommon in people, like mast cell tumor, are a lot more common in certain dog breeds. So it's, it's a really interesting um, system to look at to try to figure out the genetics of why that is. And how much information do we have about the role DNA plays versus the role environment plays in cancer in dogs? I haven't seen it quantified, but um, you know, where you've got a tumor where the where the risk is, you know, five or tenfold different across breeds, that's a pretty good indication that this is primarily being driven by genetics and not environment, because most you know, most dogs in the United States are living in pretty similar environments. They're in a you know human household, and there may be differences, but those differences aren't aren't necessarily strongly correlated by breed. Uh, a lot of the risk factors for cancer in people, the environmental ones, are are mitigated a little bit with dogs. I mean, dogs tend not to smoke. Dogs tend not <laughs> to get sunburns. You know, so you have uh, not not that they can never 
get them or, or that they don't live in secondhand smoke. But um, it, it seems like, and there's there's a lot more genetic differentiation between dog breeds than there are between different people. Uh, so it seems like the, the genetic influence is, is stronger on dogs, but I'm, I'm sure that uh, the exact percentages are going to differ for different kinds of cancer. Has life expectancy increased over time for dogs like it has for humans? Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't look like there's been a very strong increase in lifespan. Um, certainly veterinary care has gotten better, um, uh, you know, particularly in, in Western countries. Uh, and people are spending more on their dogs. But um, lifespan has is, is been pretty flat in dogs. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose if you compare a pet dog in the United States to a street dog abroad, uh, you could say that the lifespan is better. Um, but a lot of the, I mean, dogs, dogs unfortunately uh, can age quickly, especially large breed dogs. Uh, and, and that is, a, you know, it's one of the areas where dogs are genetically really interesting as well, because I can't think of another mammal species where you see a two to three fold difference in the aging rate across different, you know, populations which is what we see in dogs. And why do you think that is? Well, we know it's tightly linked with um, size. So big dogs age quickly. Uh, but beyond that, there's there's probably in many breeds an impact of inbreeding. So, you know, health span is decreased. Uh, if, you, if you have this inbreeding load, uh, you know, on top of whatever else is going on. And, and that's something we'd like to understand better as well. Uh, we don't even really have a very good idea for why uh, big dogs age quickly. Uh, if you look across species, of course, the opposite is true. Usually the bigger the body size in the species, the longer lived that species is, uh, you know, within a group. But within a species, that, that flips over and, and uh, nowhere uh, more uh, strongly than in dogs. And you've talked about inbreeding a bit. Can you kind of expand on that and talk about responsible breeding and what inbreeding is and how to prevent that? Yeah. So almost every single, you know, population has uh, disease alleles uh, that are segregating the population, right? Nobody's perfect. Um, everybody's, everybody's genome is riddled with some things that, that are not that great. But fortunately, uh, you've got two copies of your genome. And so even if you have one defective copy of a gene, uh, you almost certainly have a working copy that you inherited from your other parent. And so most of the flaws in our genome are compensated for, uh, you know, quite well. The problem is if you inbreed, then, uh, then mom and dad are related. And so it's possible the copy of the gene you got from mom is the same as the copy you got from dad. And so if that's a copy that has one of these defects on it, now you don't have a working copy of the gene. And so these sort of recessive disease alleles, uh, they get unmasked when you have inbreeding. And that's what, we're, that's what we're trying to avoid in both dogs and human populations. And what is the best way to avoid that? Responsible breeding? Responsible breeding um, is certainly a necessary but not sufficient condition. So there's lots of responsible breeders out there. Uh, but if they don't have the tools to recognize that this mating should be avoided and this other mating should be preferred, uh, then all the responsibilities of the world doesn't help them because they're, they're flying blind. Uh, they've been using pedigrees, um, you know, as, and, and there's some, you know, very dedicated people that are entering these pedigree records and stuff, but the pedigrees generally only go back 
you know, five or 10 generations, which sounds like a lot, um, but a lot of the inbreeding load in dogs is because they were founded, you know, 100 or 200 years ago from a relatively small number of individuals. And so a lot of the inbreeding tracts are, are going back dozens of generations to where you have two ancestors that descend from the same founder. And so those sorts of things are hidden um, by nearly all of the pedigrees, but they're still important genetically. And also pedigrees kind of only give you sort of the average expected amount of inbreeding that you're gonna have. The actual amount of inbreeding depends specifically on which parts of which chromosomes got inherited by which ancestors. And that's something only, you know, genetic analysis is gonna be able to tell you. So going forward, how do we help with this? So, you know, one thing that researchers like me are interested in are, are creating the genetic tools that, and getting them in the hands of breeders uh, so that they're, they're able to have as much information as possible uh, before making a decision. I mean, I certainly don't want anybody making a decision just based on genetics, but I think that's an important component uh, for, for making healthy breeding decisions. Uh, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, solving cancer in dogs, like, developing new therapies to treat cancer is great. But what I think is even greater is if we have the genetic tools so that the cancer doesn't show up in the first place, that we can breed it out of these breeds. And so, you know, that's that's definitely the area of research that I'm, that I'm most interested in. Can you talk about the progress that's been made to date a little bit more? So we've got, you know, certain breed clubs that have been very, very adamant. I don't know how familiar you are with, with hip dysplasia, but, um, you know, dogs with dysplastic hips, um, you know, they, they go lame, they get osteoarthritis, it's not, you know, they don't, they're not good working dogs, it's, it's not a very good uh, condition for the dog to have. Um, and, and by being, you know, almost ruthless and making sure that every single dog uh, that that is potentially being bred in a breed gets evaluated at a young age uh, to see what the hip scores are, and then using that information to make breeding decisions has driven down the prevalence of hip dysplasia uh, in a few breeds. Um, we, you could probably do this faster if we have better genetic tools, and we can probably do it better. Um, but, but you know, definitely, even even these kind of complex conditions that are present in many breeds, um, you know, there are ways uh, to reduce it. You just you have to have the desire to do it, and then you have to have the research and the tools to to make that desire and turn it into action. Do you work closely with the AKC in these initiatives? Yeah, so the AKC funds uh, a lot of the research that goes on in my lab. We have a deafness study uh, that's going on right now. Uh, you know, they're they're definitely in it for for the health of the dogs, and uh, and you know they 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 get the genetics, and so uh, you know they're they're a great ally for for trying to see if we can. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to. We don't want to shame people for breeding dogs. I think it's great. I think what we want to do is is we want to make sure that the breeding is done in a responsible way, uh, and and give responsible breeders the the tools that they need in order to make that happen, and give consumers, um, you know, sort of more of an ability to make sure that their the dogs that they're getting were responsibly bred. And, and touching on that a little bit, I feel like there's a big push anti-breeding, hashtag adopt own shop. Can you talk a little bit about how responsible breeding is important and kind of touch on that? Yeah. So, I mean, I love shelter dogs. I have a shelter dog at home. You know, I think they're great. Uh, but if we don't have responsible breeders breeding dogs, what's going to happen is we're going to have irresponsible breeders breeding dogs. And 
you know, there's not there's not enough shelter dogs to go around uh, for everybody if people just stop dog breeding. And we, it, it, you know, uh, I, it, and we we don't want to we don't want to lose the you know the diverse populations that we have in in some of these breeds anyway. So you know, so it's not like one is better than the other, um, but I think we can all agree. You know, the last thing that we want is you know, breeders that are in it for the money and, and don't really feel like a stakeholder in the health of the breed that they have or taking shortcuts that kind of risk the health of the litters that they're creating, um, we, you know, those, those that's the kind of thing that we need to crack down on. And how do you recommend that we combat against that? Uh, it all starts and ends with consumer education. Like, you know, knowing what to look for in responsible breeding, uh, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, don't take the breeder's word that the dog's been genetically tested and health tested. Like they should be showing you the results of the genetic test. They should be showing you the results of the health, the, the health test. Um, you know, you, you, you know, trust, but verify kind of thing because irresponsible breeders can, can say whatever they want to say. And, and we see this at Embark, people who were told that they, you know, adopted a certain kind of dog. And when you do a genetic test, you find out it's a completely different kind of dog. And the breeder just said it was a certain kind of dog because that's what it would sell the most for. I mean, we've seen, we've seen breeders sell litter mates and called each litter mate a different kind of designer breed because that's, you know, that's how they thought they could make the most money. So, so definitely using genetic testing to, to verify that the dog you're getting is your, is your dog and the parents have been tested in the way that they should be tested, uh, I think is very important. And actually looking at the, the results of the health screening to make sure that it was done and, you know, going to the, to the breed club homepage and verifying that all of the tests that should be done were done. So for people looking to make sure that they're getting the right kind of dog, as far as figuring out that they have the right documentation, what do you recommend they do? So, so again, going to, going to the breed club webpage, cause, cause there's, um, you know, these breed clubs definitely are wanting to maintain the health of their breed. And so they're going to give you good advice as a buyer for what to expect, what you should look for, what you should insist on. Um, I think that's that's always a really great starting place. The AKC has some some resources too, of course. Uh, and you know, also if if the breeder can put you in touch with other people who have you know adopted dogs from them before, uh, and and listening to you know even even outside of the genetics uh, scheme of things, like you know having the breeder talk through, how are they enriching the dog? How are they socializing the dog? What's the expectation on you when you adopt the dog? I mean, you know, hopefully the, the, the breeder is giving you some good advice about, you know, how their dogs behave and, and what sorts of activities are appropriate. Um, but yeah, just, you know, the, the very basic of, oh, I got this folder and I don't know what's in it. Well, you know, <laughs> why, you, why, you know, that's, you know, that's a real problem. This is a, this is a big investment. It's not only, you know, a decade or more, uh, of your life, it's probably in, over the lifetime of the dog twenty to thirty thousand dollars in food and vet bills and and stuff and it, and um, making sure you start off on the right foot is really important. Is there anyone other than the AKC that's helping fund this research? Oh yeah, absolutely. So Morris Animal Foundation um, do, does a lot of research this way. Uh, you know, uh, Cornell University and other uh, veterinary colleges have research funds, and and you know they've made a lot of great progress. Uh, there's been some funding from National Institutes of Health. I mean, they're interested obviously in human health, but to the extent that dogs are a good model for, for different conditions in people, uh, there's funding that way. Uh, in Europe, there's there's been robust funding for dog research, uh, you know, everywhere from uh, disease mapping and cancer trials all the way to uh, 
ancient DNA analysis to try to understand even more about the history and early uh, uh, early origins of dogs. How does the the research compare Europe versus the U.S.? Is it pretty much on par? Uh, yeah, I, I think that w- there's a, a playful competition between <laughs> uh, American researchers and European researchers, and actually Chinese researchers are, are definitely um, uh, coming forward in leaps and bounds now too. So, uh, and I don't want to leave out Australia. Uh, so there's there's a lot of really good research being done. We actually have meetings all over the world uh, every year, uh, and and a lot of collaborative uh, projects uh, as well. So uh, you know, like there, there's this this plan now to sequence ten thousand uh, dog genomes, and that's you know, so we're getting all the research in the world going over to China to to to, to work on this project. It's 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 really an exciting time right now. That's awesome. And what is your day to day like? Oh man, uh, <laughs> so. So I, you know, I'm a, a professor at Cornell. So, so most of my day is is spent at Cornell, kind of leading a research lab, working uh, with uh, collaborators at Cornell and elsewhere, uh, giving talks, applying for grants. Uh, but then also, you know, we have uh, the, the researchers at Embark and and getting to work with them some too as new data is coming online and there's new uh, results that we want to push out to, to customers and and new research partnerships and collaborations where you know we've got kind of a unique data set there and trying to get the most out of it uh, is is definitely what we're looking to do. And how long have you been at Cornell? I did my first po- I did my first postdoc at Cornell and then left to go to Stanford. Uh, for a couple years, and then when the faculty position opened at the vet college here, I, uh, I, I uh, hightailed it back, and so I've been here now for almost seven years. Are there any things we didn't touch on that you want to add in before we sign off? Um, oh, I'm trying to think. I think that just about covers it. Uh, yeah, I kind of wish we had taped this uh, like a month later because we're about to kick off a few different research initiatives, but I'm not able to kind of disclose it quite yet. So. Uh, Maybe you can have me back on sometime. (laughs) To be continued then. (laughs) That was Adam Boyko, assistant professor at the Cornell Vet School and co-founder of Embark, a leader in canine DNA research. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please leave us an awesome review and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you have any pet-related topics you want us to cover, email us at podcast at petinsider.com. To listen to past episodes, visit petinsider.com slash podcast. I'm Lonnie Edwards, and thank you for listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. Talk soon.